in this book of Ecclesiastes, this book of wisdom which Solomon wrote. It seems as if uh, this is his repentance. That's what I, I take it as his repentance, as some others do as well. Solomon's repenting towards the end of his life and reflecting upon life and the meaning of life and the purpose of life. And so he writes this book concerning that. So read along with me, uh, Ecclesiastes, chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty with your mouth or impulsive in your heart to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, but you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through abundant endeavor and the voice of a fool through abundant words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and wreak destruction on the work of your hands? For in many dreams and vanities are many words. Rather, fear God. If you see oppression of the poor and robbery of justice and righteousness in the province... Do not be astonished over the matter, for a lofty one keeps watch over another lofty one, and there are loftier ones over them. But the advantage of the land in everything is this, a king committed to a cultivated field. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its produce. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the success to their masters except to look on with their eyes? The sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the satisfaction of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a sickening evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their master to his own evil dem demise. And those riches were lost through a bad endeavor, and he became the father of a son, but there was nothing in his hand for him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will carry nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can bring in his hand. This also is a sickening evil. Exactly as a man came, so will he go. So what is the advantage to him who labors for the wind? Also all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and his sickness and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good, which is beautiful, to eat, to drink, and to see good in all one's labor, in which he labors under the sun during the few days of his life which God has given him, for this is his portion. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to take up his portion and be glad in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not remember much the days of his life because God allows him to occupy himself with the gladness of his heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this chapter, these um, many verses and principles of wisdom, 
observations from King Solomon concerning life lived under the sun. Lord, help us to glean wisdom from this book, from this chapter, from these verses. Help us to understand them. Help us to apply them to our lives. Please be with us. Please be with me as I preach your word and guide my words, guide my tongue for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This book, as we've been going through it, and most of it, we see these uh, proverbs of wisdom and as Solomon is reflecting upon the world, upon um, uh, life in this world, upon mankind, uh, you know, as, as I said uh, in many uh, messages before and, and uh, just now that um, this is in a sense uh, Solomon's uh, repentance. Uh, he's reflecting upon life towards the end of his life and uh, just in a sense uh, uh, trying to figure out the meaning and purpose of life or, or um, recording his, his uh, search for meaning and purpose and all the things that he uh, went after uh, uh, concerning uh, his wisdom and, and the wisdom that God gave him and all the works that he did and uh, trying to uh, find pleasure and fulfillment in this world. And so he comes to the end of his life and he, uh, in a sense, uh, in a sense uh, repents and, and writes this down. We, we see that at the end um, when he, he says, uh, you know, the conclusion, therefore the end of the matter all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the conclusion, the, the, the meaning <laughs> that he arrives at, the meaning of life. Uh, but throughout uh, each chapter, throughout as he gets there, we see his observations. In the first few chapters, while he, he records um, his search for meaning and um, pleasure and, and uh, uh, works and, and building and wisdom and the attainment of knowledge. And, and then even uh, uh, the last week, we looked at chapter 4, and uh, we see... Uh, the, the vanities of labor and status and, and just the different positions that um, people find themselves in in this fallen world and, and uh, relationships with one another, companionship. And then we get to this chapter and, and many commentators, many pastors um, who have written about this, who have preached on this chapter would say that this is almost the center point. This is almost the center point in uh, verses 1 to 7 uh, of chapter 5 uh, as he, he talks about worship, uh, uh, about going to the house of God, about fearing God, how we should approach God. And, and then he gets into uh, the vanity of riches or money or um, uh, chasing after things. And, and, and some have said that this chapter and, and much of the book of Ecclesiastes is in a sense kind of hard to outline. Um, there's some truth to that, but and, and many would um, approach this chapter and split it up. But I think it is one uh, theme throughout this chapter. As uh, we have this theme of worship in verses 1 to 7 and then verses 8 to 20, um, almost a, the theme of uh, possessions and labor. But, but I think it's, it's all one. And, and I think uh, there's these underlying 
uh, themes of human pride and presumption, of pride and presumption, of how one approaches God and then how one approaches uh, the things in this world and, and life in this world. Um, Solomon um, continues to uh, address these themes of pride and presumption, presuming upon God, presuming upon your place in the world or your, your things, your possessions, and, and, and having pride, either religious pride or, or pride over your stuff and your accomplishments. Dr. William Berg, an Old Testament scholar that I often go to um, that uh, in looking at Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or the Psalms, he, he writes this. He says, throughout chapter 4, the author focuses on the ongoing issues of everyday life, which demonstrate that individually and corporately, people cannot resolve their most persistent problems. Solomon's investigations lead him to a consideration of mankind's relationship to God. Then he, quoting uh, Charles Swindoll, he says, Swindoll opens his examination of Ecclesiastes 5 with the following thought. So many of Solomon's ideas and observations are horizontal musings. The bitter, barren, boring side of life seen through disillusioned eyes. But on a few rare occasions, the man breaks out of his cynical syndrome. At those times, his comments contain a remarkable vertical perspective that scrapes away the veneer of empty religion and takes us back to the bedrock of a meaningful relationship with the living Lord. Each individual must realize that God's involvement in his or her life consists of more than afflicting people with a grievous task and providing work, food, enjoyment, wisdom, and knowledge. Therefore, each person under the sun must anticipate an encounter with the eternal God beyond the sun. And I think that, that's where he he's gets at is um, throughout the first four chapters, he's, he's, he's searching or, or um, recording his search for the meaning and purpose of life and, and all the things that, that he sought after, that, that many people uh, uh, seek after, uh, things and possessions and experiences and relationships and works and labor and all, all the common things that, that mankind chases after. And then he gets to, to this, this point. And all along the lines, he's alluding to, in a sense, that there, there's an end of life. And because there's an end of life, and because we must die at some point, there's this fear of death of, of making the most out of life. And so now he gets to this point of our relationship with God and how we are to approach God. In this chapter, I believe there's two main lessons which Solomon is trying to teach us as he seeks to teach us these lessons by way of warnings and exhortations. Two lessons he he tries to teach his readers. Uh, The first being in verses 1 to 7 and the second being in verses 8 to 20. In the first lesson, Solomon wants his hearers to learn is how to live in the fear and worship of God. How to live in the fear and worship of God because we all have to, uh, whether you're a believer or not, at some point you will meet God and at some point you will come face to face with God and, and must, must uh, submit your life, all that you are, to God. Uh, uh, 
submit to the fact that you are accountable to God, you're responsible to God. And especially for the Israelites and for us, we know that. And so this lesson of how we are to live in the fear and worship of God, how are we to approach God? And the, the, the first um, lesson in this question, he has a series of, um, of lessons or, or admonitions or exhortations, uh, mostly in the negative, is the first one is do not presume upon God. Do not presume upon God. Verse 1, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And and yes, Solomon, we we know um, in his time, this is uh, Old Testament time, the Old Covenant, they, they actually have uh, you know, a temple to go to. That, that's what the center of worship and, and us um, being uh, New Testament believers uh, in, in, um, under the New Covenant, um, being saved. We, we know that there, there isn't a particular space, but God has come down. He dwells among us. He dwells inside of us. And so there isn't a particular space. We, we have buildings, we have a facility where we gather, but really the house of God is wherever the people of God gather. So for you know, many believers around the world, they could be gathering out in a field or in the woods or um, they have to change locations from time to time as the New Testament church had to do from house to house. And so wherever they gathered, that was the house of God. So this principle still um, holds true to us, uh, this warning, this exhortation that we are to guard our steps as we go to the house of God, as we gather, whether that's gathering in someone's home for a small group Bible study or or gathering um, out in a field or gathering in a nice facility. Wherever, Wherever we gather, we are to guard our steps as we go to gather Um, That we are to draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. We are to guard our steps, guard our heart, watch our mouth. We are to take worship seriously. Not to be flippant, not to be frivolous. We're not to um, be too familiar with God. And, And the more, you know, the longer you live as a believer, the more you you know, attend church, I think the danger kind of grows to grow familiar. And this is just the same thing, you know, we're creatures of habit. And over and over, you know, there's an old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And we just get used to being in church. We get used to the way church goes and, and uh, just church culture and church life. And we can lose the grandeur of it all. We can lose our awe, our, our sense of reverence, our sense of fear. This is, this is kind of the, the warning uh, all throughout that, you know, the Old Testament prophets continued to bring up to the people of God. This was their rebuke to the people of God. This is, this is what we read in Isaiah. This is, this is what Jesus, his, his main rebuke to the people of God as people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. We read this in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 1. You turn there, Isaiah chapter 1, and this is 
in a sense. You know, why Isaiah is sent to, uh, to the people. Why, why he's commissioned as a prophet to rebuke them. And, and not because um, so much because they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. Yes, there was many that fell into that category, but there was many also who were doing the right things, but with the wrong heart. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, it says, uh, God speaking through the prophet says this, what, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And in the blood of bulls, lambs, and, or goats, I take no ple- pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocation. I cannot endure wickedness in the solemn assembly. My soul hates your new moon festivals and your appointed times. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Indeed, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, purify yourselves, Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Execute justice for the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And what Yahweh, what God is is confronting through the prophet is this perfunctory worship, this flippant worship, this, uh, as Jesus quoted from Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And and certainly um, in uh, Isaiah's time, there was uh, Israelites of of, um, various degrees of faithfulness, some who fell headlong into idolatry, and gross iniquity. And then there was others who um, may have been a, a few who may have been faithful, but for the most, the most part, they were unfaithful. And then, then there was many who, um, who uh, put on this show or this, this um, appearance of faithfulness. As we read in Isaiah 1, that, that they were still doing the things they, they were supposed to do. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still obeying the feasts. They were still... Um, going to the festivals and doing everything that, in a sense, was required of them in the law, but their heart was not in it. And they were, in a sense, probably still living a double life of sin and idolatry. They were presuming upon God. They weren't treating God as God. They weren't fearing God. They were just going through the motions. Dr. Jim Roskup, in his commentary on this passage, he writes this. He says, Wise counsel cautions those coming to God's house to bring a receptive, respectful spirit. The focus is on hearing God and praying to him in in a way that delights him. Jesus spoke somewhat similarly of praying in a spirit that pleases God in Luke chapter 18 as he he talks about that, that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
two people who come. And, and, and one, the Pharisee, is proud. And uh, he, he, he's not even really praying to God. He's, he's, in a sense, praying about himself. I thank you, God, that I'm not like others, like this uh, tax collector, adulterers, or all these evil people. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm good. And the tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He says, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is, in a sense, a, a, a fear and a reverence which we should come to worship with. Recognizing our own sinfulness and, and being grateful for God's mercy and His grace in the gospel and His forgiveness. And seeking more forgiveness for the sins that we continue to commit. We're to guard our steps, but we're also to prepare ourselves for worship. In prayer and confession and contemplation and in rest, being well rested. And also, as Solomon alludes to in verse 1, in separation. It says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near. Guard your steps. Almost be careful where you go. Be careful where you walk or how you walk. What you do, your behaviors. Come to God with a right heart, with right attitudes, uh, with a righteous life. The second lesson is do not be flippant with God. Verses 2 to 3, do not be hasty with your mouth or impulsive in your heart to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven, but you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through abundant endeavor and the voice of a fool through abundant words. Don't be flippant with God. Think before you speak or think before you act, especially in regard to worship. He's kind of alluding more towards prayer, which even uh, as Solomon builds a temple and he, he uh, commemorates the, the, or the, the temple and, and that, that great um, commemoration of the, the temple, that, that great uh, uh, ceremony, and he says, you know, this house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. It's, and that, that's something that we should primarily be doing in church. We should be praying, um, not necessarily uh, uh, verbally, but you know, definitely in our thoughts, in our heart. We should be praying. We shouldn't be flippant towards God. Don't treat God as a man. As he says, for God is in heaven, but you are on the earth. Therefore, let your, gods, let your words be few. God is in heaven, but you are on the earth. God is not a man. He's not to be treated as a man. Or, or worse yet, an idol, an image you've crafted in your own mind, a, a, an idea of God, of what God is like. God tells us what He's like. And, and, and as many preachers have said before, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And ever since then, man has been trying to return the favor. And there is a sense that um, even in our own thinking, we can presume upon God and presume he is uh, like a certain way or, or thinks a certain way. But the only way we can be sure of who and what God is like is through his, his word. We're not to be flippant with God or presume upon him or, or think he is like something that he is not. I remember when I was in the Marine Corps and um, there was 
these phrases that sergeants would always confront you with um, when you would get a little bit too casual, and especially when you get too casual with an officer as a lower enlisted man, as a private. And, uh, you know, I remember a couple times and, you know, an officer might be being nice to you and just wanting to know who you are and stuff, and, and you might let down your guard and get a little bit too casual. And a sergeant would snap at you and say, that's not your drinking buddy. That's not your friend. That's an officer. Sometimes we can, in a sense, treat God a little bit too casual. Think of another time in the military. I was, you know, um, as an officer and um, with other staff officers and, and uh, senior uh, sergeants, and, and we had a really great boss, really kind, joking, and uh, things weren't getting done. He wasn't being listened to. And he just said one phrase to us. He said, I think you have confused my kindness with my position. I think you have confused my kindness with my position. Just, said it just like that, snapped us right back. There's a sense God is infinitely kind, He's merciful, He's gracious, He's forgiving. But he's still God. He's still God. He's still the ruler of all creation. He's still the king of the universe. He's still master. He's still Lord. We need to treat him as such. We need to approach him as such. Solomon goes on. He says, Therefore let your, let your words be few. For the dream comes through abundant endeavor and the voice of a fool through abundant words. This one commentator, he writes this, because this dream, where you think about the dream, what dream? In one commentator, he writes this, the dream might be nothing more than daydreams, reducing worship to verbal doodling. Verbal doodling, your mind just drifts and you're just daydreaming. And yes, your mind may be dreaming about worship and things about God, but it's just going all over the place. It's not fixated on God's word or what he reveals himself to be. Verbal doodling also says much effort identifies what distracts an individual from the proper exercise of worship and causes an increase of hasty words. Context indicates that the meaning probably involves the thought that many have delusions of their competence before God and acceptability to Him. Meaning, uh, uh, the, the worshiper is, is just dreaming all sorts of things about God that, that may not be exactly true. There are also the abundant endeavor, endeavors, the abundant works, uh, the much effort um, dwelling upon what they have done for God the abundant words, what they can contribute to God. Do not be flippant with God. Solomon's third uh, lesson, third admonition in how to live in the fear and worship of God is this. Do not be unfaithful to God. Verses 4 to 5, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Pay what you vow. Do what you say. Be a man or a woman of your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
as Jesus would say. And this goes back to, you know, we, we don't really uh, make many vows in, in, uh, to God in, in, uh, in our Christian lives, uh, or we don't see it as a vow. There, there's still, sometimes we still make vows, but uh, this goes back to Old Testament law when vows were made. And, and there is a sense, as, you know, some of us read that passage at, uh, in, uh, as Jesus quotes, don't make oaths to God, but there's also a sense in which you shouldn't. But if you do, you, you carry it out and you make sure that oath is in, in accord with God's word. Deuteronomy 23, this is what Solomon is in a sense uh, pointing back to in the law. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 21, he says, uh, Moses writing, says, When you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For Yahweh your God will surely require it of you, and it will be a sin in you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it will not be a sin in you. You shall be careful and do what goes out from your lips. Just as you have voluntarily vowed to Yahweh your God, that which you spoke with your mouth. This is what Solomon is, is hinting back at, the Old Testament law concerning vows. Um, and, and there's a great illustration of this for us as New Testament believers in Acts chapter, uh, chapter uh, 6, Ananias and Sapphira, that they, in a sense, we don't, explicitly see that they vowed something, but they went to uh, offer, present an offering. I, I believe it's actually Acts chapter 5, but they, they, they present this offering right after Barnabas sells a piece of property and then he, he lays it, the, all of it down at the apostles' feet. And so they're like, we'll do the same. But they make it appear as if they're giving all the money and they keep back some of it. And they're struck dead. Peter confronts them, saying, so you're, 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 you're almost, in a sense, vowing that, okay, we're going to give this whole property, all the proceeds to the church, but you kept back some secretly. Rather, you should have said, just said, hey, we sold our house, we sold this property, here's half of it, you know, and that would have been fine. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be honest. Be a person of your word. Do not be unfaithful to God. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Fourth, Solomon's fourth lesson in, uh, or fourth um, admonition under this lesson of how to live in the fear and worship of God is do not exaggerate with God. Do not exaggerate with God. Verses 6 and 7, do not allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and wreak destruction on the work of your hands? For in many dreams and vanities are many words. Rather, fear God. Fear God. Don't, don't exaggerate with God. Don't allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. And I couldn't help but think of that, that um, common saying in, in our day and age. Uh, maybe some of you have grown up hearing it and um, people would say almost to pick a fight. Your mouth is writing checks your body can't cash. <laughs> and it is, this is, in a sense, what, what 
is happening with the worshiper and between the worshiper and God. Their, their mouth is writing checks that their flesh can't cash. They're, they're, they're in a sense, uh, uh, exaggerating. Exaggerating about their, their faithfulness or about their, what they will, their service or what they'll do for God. Don't exaggerate with God. Don't boast. Don't make empty promises. Be honest. Fear God. Worship Him with a clear conscience. Dr. Barrick, once again, he, he comments on this, this concept of, uh, in verse 7, many dreams and many words or vanities. He says this, the many dreams and many words fall into the category of empty things. Things with no purpose, no value, or no meaning. Vows made on the basis of such dreams and words result in purposeless, empty prayer. And he goes on, he says, Most Christians find it difficult to describe what fear God means. Does it mean to be afraid, to have reverential all, or to mortify the flesh or crucify self? If we cannot define it, how can we exercise it? Since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, our knowledge faces a severe deficit without it. No wisdom exists apart from the fear of the Lord. In addition, Scripture associates blessing with the fear of God. Without the fear of the Lord, therefore, an individual lacks knowledge, wisdom, and blessing. God reveals in His Word exactly what comprises the fear of the Lord. And goes on, he explains this. Because that's, in a sense, not just what Solomon's lesson here in those three words at the end of verse 7, rather, fear God, his main lesson, but it's a lesson of the whole book. In the end of that matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. So we must know what it really means to fear God. And Dr. Barrick, he goes on, he says, Biblically, the fear of God includes the following six elements. Trust God completely, taken from Psalm 115, verse 11. Experience God's forgiveness in reality, taken from Psalm 130, verse 4. Delight in God's word, taken from Psalm 112, verse 1. Go beyond delighting in God's word, obey it, taken from Psalm 119, and verse 63, and then even Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fifth, hate evil, Proverbs 8, 13. And sixth, Steadfastly hope in God's loyal love, Psalm 147. This is what it means to fear God, to trust Him, to experience His forgiveness, to delight in His word, to, to obey His word, to hate evil, and to hope in His steadfast love. And Solomon wants his readers to learn this first lesson of how to live in the fear and worship of God because that's, in a sense, a, the culminating conclusion of his search and of this whole book is to fear God and keep his commandments. But second, his second lesson is, in verses 8 to 20, how to live under the rule and reign of God. How to live in this world, in this sin-cursed world. He says in verse 8 and 9, If you see oppression of the poor and robbery of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be astonished over the matter. For a lofty one keeps watch over another lofty one, and there are loftier ones over them. But the advantage of the land in everything is this, a king committed to a cultivated field. A king committed to a cultivated field. 
Solomon goes into, after um, teaching us how to live in the fear and worship of God, he, he goes into this, this next lesson, how to live under the rule and reign of God. And, and once again, as his first lesson, there, there's several negative things. Uh, do not do this. Do not do that. Uh, uh, and, and then uh, two positive uh, lessons. His first lesson, do not be surprised at sin. Do not be surprised at sin, as he says, if you see oppression of the poor and robbery of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be astonished over the matter. Do not be surprised at sin. We live in a broken world. Sinner's going to sin. Sinner's going to sin. People, it just happens. So don't be astonished over it. Don't be surprised at it because then you'll be able to deal with it more effectively. You'll be able to live in this world if you don't expect everyone to act how they're supposed to act. You know, it's one of the things um, with anger and frustration. Um, anger and frustration happen when um, reality doesn't line up with our expectations. We expect things to go a certain way, and I always use this, this illustration of road rage. You know, road rage or being angry on the road happens when we set out on our trip and we decide, well, oh, we'll get to this place in half hour or an hour, and, and then something happens and, and reality doesn't meet up with our expectations, and so we get angry and frustrated. This is, in a sense, what, what Solomon is saying. You see oppression of the poor and robbery of justice and righteousness? Don't be astonished. You live in a sin-cursed world. You know, you know, in, you know especially over the last couple of years and, and um, you know, in other countries, people can get upset and just angry in, 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 over injustice. And there is a sense that we should be angry at what God is angry over, but we shouldn't be surprised at it. You know, even Christians over the last couple of years are just... The government wouldn't do that to their people. The government wouldn't lie. They wouldn't lie. I mean, this is the, the government. Why would the government lie? I mean, come on. I mean, people seeking positions of power, they wouldn't do anything illegal or unethical or immoral. Don't be surprised at sin. You should be, Christians should be the last people that are surprised with sin because you should have a fully formed biblical worldview. You should be looking at the world as it really is because we have the scriptures. You shouldn't be surprised at sin. You shouldn't be caught off guard by sinners sinning. In the end, he says, uh, verse 9, this lesson, uh, do not be surprised at sin. He says, the advantage of the land in everything is this, a king committed to a cultivated field. And what he's getting at here is that um, though we live in a sin-cursed world and a broken world and there's, there's oppression, there's injustice, uh, there's corruption, the advantage or any advantage of society happens when a ruler commits to its well-being. When, when a king uh, commits to a cultivated field, meaning the land. He commits himself to cultivating the land, to cultivating his country, to, uh, he commits to his people. If there's any advantage in society, it's when the rulers commit to their people. So don't be surprised at sin. Second, 
Do not hope in possessions. Verses 10 to 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its produce. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the success to their masters except to look on with their eyes? The sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the satisfaction of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Do not place your hope in possessions. Don't love money. Don't love money. Yeah, we need money and we use money and it's good to make money. It's not wrong to even make more money. <laughs> it's just what's your motive? Is your motive to, to be generous, to provide for your family, to provide for the church, to give? Or, or is it to uh, build bigger barns and bigger barns to store up for yourself all this uh, treasure? As Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You cannot serve two masters, for you will love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. And money in and of itself is not wrong. It's where our heart is concerning money. Are we placing our hope in possessions and riches and what money can buy? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its produce. You've heard that saying people ask, um, John Rockefeller or, or other uh, rich men, uh, you know, how much is enough? And say, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Always chasing more and more and more. Never satisfied. One commentator, he writes this, the limits to the value of money are, it cannot satisfy the covetous. It attracts a circle of dependence and it disturbs one's peace. It, it, it cannot satisfy those with a covetous heart, those who love money. They'll, they'll never be fully satisfied. And then it, it attracts dependence. When good things increase, those who consume them also increase. You know, so what is the success to their masters except to look on with their eyes? So, you know, people who get rich, people who, who win the, you know, especially those who get rich quick through lottery or, or some other um, scheme or, or wh wh whether it's, it's a scheme, whether it's um, unethical or, or whether it's totally legal, those who get rich quick, all of a sudden the friends multiply. The people come out of the woodwork. You know, old associates that um, all of a sudden act like uh, your best friend. And, you know, those who consume the good things, they increase. And so, you know, the, the, the person who obtains this great wealth or all these things, they, they, they can't really enjoy them. If, if that's where their heart is, the sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the satisfaction of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. You know, so, someone who has a job and they, they just have a simple job and they, they're, they're content and they go to work, they do a good job, and, and then they go home and, and they can rest. They're content. You see this often in, in entrepreneurs, those who start a business or they're, they're, they're trying to expand their business and they're working 80, 90 hours a week. Or, and even when they go home, they can't sleep because they're thinking about what's going on. I, I remember hearing about uh, day traders, people who would get involved in day trading stocks, doing stocks. And, and uh, nowadays, you know, you, 
you have apps on your phone. So you can, you can trade with your phone all, all day long. And some of them, in fact, many of them that I've interacted with would admit that it becomes an addiction. And they can't stop and they, they can't sleep and they're waking up and they're always because you got to be on it. to make. And then even if you're making money, you're afraid of losing the money. So then you're always looking at your phone. You're always looking at the stock market. You're always looking at and, and there's no sleep. There's no rest. You're like a hamster on the hamster wheel, constantly going. Be content with what you have, what God has given you. Paul gives this admonition to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and 8 to 10. He says, if we had, have food and covering, with these we shall be content. The, the, the basic necessities of life. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a, snare, and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils and some by aspiring to it have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. You know, even as you know, I, I said uh, you know this morning, we as we've been going through uh, Philippians and uh, uh, the Paul's letter to the Philippians, and um, and he writes in chapter four that he has learned to be content, whether he abounds or he is abased. He's learned in all all situations to be content and that, that's something that we have to learn to be content if we have the basic necessities of life that God has um, has promised to us as we read in Matthew chapter 6 that that he will provide he will provide all that we need then we can be content we can be t- content so Solomon tells us how to live under the rule and reign of God by first and do not be surprised at sin. Second, do not hope in possessions. And third, uh, do not hoard your possessions either. Those, those things that you have been given, do not hoard them. Verses 13 to 17. There is a sickening evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their master to his own evil de- demise. And those riches were lost through a bad endeavor. And he became the father of a son, but there was nothing in his hand for him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will carry nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can bring in his hand. This also is a sickening evil. Exactly as a man came, so will he go. So what is the advantage to him who labors for the wind? Also all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and his sickness and anger. He's just hoarding riches and then in the end, he loses them and he has this son, he has a family and now he can't provide because he's been preoccupied with his wealth. He's hoarding. You see that, you know, there's reality shows. There's a reality show of hoarders. And probably only in our you know, Western civilization, our culture, which we're so prosperous that we have these hoarders who, and you can see these shows, you probably heard stories, you probably know somebody who's a hoarder. All sorts of things. And sometimes um, it's good things. Sometimes I've seen these shows where um, it's unopened packages, unclosed with still tags on it, and they just continue to buy and buy and buy and they never use. 
They just have to have one more thing and one more thing and it just piles up and piles up and they, they can't get rid of it. They're not, they're not using it. This is, you know, uh, even, even in the, the wilderness, you know, the God supplies his, his people with the manna. And what, what, what does he tell them? You, you can't keep it. You can't hoard it. If you, if you try to save up for the next day, then it'll grow worms. In, in, this is a, God gives us things to use. He gives us riches to use. And there is a sense that it, it, it's wise to save and diligent, but there's also a sense that, you know, as Jesus said, not, we're not to build bigger and bigger in barns. We, we, can't, we can't take it with us. We also need to be careful, you know, what we leave behind and who we leave it behind to. You know, God gives us all good things to enjoy, to use, to get through life. He gives us food, shelter, and clothing. And, and even if he does cause us to prosper and to get rich, the, those riches are to be used for his glory, for the benefit of others. It's all right to have stuff. It's just not all right to, for the stuff to have you. The stuff isn't to have you and have a hold on you. To hold everything with an open hand. Whether God gives it, that's good. Or whether he takes it away, that's good too. He will always provide. He'll, he'll give us enough and, and we're not to hoard. Not to hoard. And sometimes, you know, ministries and churches can do this. They're just afraid to spend money. And there is a balance there that we should save, but God has given us money to spend and we're to use that money to advance his kingdom. His ministry costs money. And we're, he gives us money to use. So third, we're, we're not to hoard our possessions. And fourth, be content with your life. Be content with your life. Verse 18, here's what I've seen to be good, which is beautiful. This is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to eat, to drink, and to see good in all one's labor in which he labors under the sun during the few days of his life which God has given him. For this is his portion. This is his portion. This is his lot in life. This is our lot in life to eat, to drink, and to see good in our labor. In the labor which God gives us under the sun. The specific place, the specific vocation and work that he has given us for that time. Yes, we, we do change jobs and careers at times and, and God does send us to different places. But in the present, where we're at, with the work we're doing, with the, the possessions he has given us, with the riches he has given us, we are to be content. We are to be content with our current set of circumstances, to be content with the life that God has given us and to thank him because that is our lot in life. And we are to glorify God in all that we do and all that we have. And then finally, this final lesson of how to live under the rule and reign of God, uh, this admonition, this warning, this exhortation is to thank God for your life, to thank God for your life. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to take up his portion and be glad in his labor. This is the gift of God. 
For he will not remember much the days of his life because God allows him to occupy himself with the gladness of his heart. Whatever we have, whatever our lot in life, we are to thank God for it. We are to be grateful. We are to be thankful. We are to rejoice in what God has given us, to be glad in our labor. And he's talking the gift of God that he's talking about at the end of verse 19 is our, the whole of our circumstances. For every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to take up his portion and be glad in his labor. And riches and wealth doesn't necessarily mean those who are rich, but it's whatever you have. Whatever you have in addition to the basic necessities of life, or, or even those necessities of life, whatever you have, the, the whole of your being, the whole, your, your labor, your lot in life, it's all a gift of God and we're to, um, to enjoy it, to thank God for it, to be content with it, to rejoice in all that God has given us. And so Solomon, he teaches us in this chapter how to live in the fear and worship of God and then how to live under the rule of and reign of God, ultimately to fear God and keep his commandments, to fear God and keep his commandments, to listen to what God has told us, what is good. David Gibson in his um, book, which I mentioned this last week, uh, and I, I highly recommend this book, this small, it's kind of like a devotional commentary, um, small paperback uh, living life backward. He takes you through each chapter of Ecclesiastes. And he, he writes this concerning this chapter. And he says, The ear is the Christian's primary sense organ. Listening to what God has said is our main spiritual discipline. We need someone to tell us to listen because we want to look and speak more than we want to listen. When it comes to relating to God, we are out of order as far as our sense organ goes. The things we see and the things we can touch dominate the way we perceive reality. We are fundamentally active creatures. We are what we do. But Ecclesiastes says that we become more human when we are what we receive. Life is a gift. And God's word is the most precious of gifts to be honored and loved and treasured above all others. Ecclesiastes is one long meditation on the need to use our ears for God's word alongside our eyes in God's world. This is, in a sense, this chapter, uh, using our ears for God's word, verses 1 to 7, to listen, and then use, then we'll be able to properly uh, use our eyes in God's world and how, how we are to live in God's world. This kind of hints back to, uh, you know, there's these, these short um, verses and passages throughout Ecclesiastes when Solomon kind of takes a step back and gets to the point of it all. It's almost like a brief reprise or a breather. One of the first ones is in Ecclesiastes 3 and verses 12 to 14. He says this, I know that there is nothing better for them than to be glad and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. 
I know that everything God does will be forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. God has so worked that men should fear him. We should fear him. We should thank him. We should rejoice in him. We should keep his commandments. And we should, we should know that and embrace the fact that he has created us. He's ordained um, our lot in life. And for many of us, he's redeemed us. And so we live in light of our creation, our redemption, and all that he has given us, all that he has uh, done in our lives. And we thank him. We understand that life is a gift and we are to live it as such and knowing that one day it will end. And uh, if we have been redeemed, then the end of our life is really just a transition to the beginning of our eternal life and life with him. And that's ultimately, you know, the lesson of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments, to seek him while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near, to, to uh, obey him, to love him, to honor him, or as Paul says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder of how we are to live in this life under the sun, in this life in a sin-cursed world, to fear you, to keep your commandments, to follow you, not to live according to our own desires or our own whims or especially not according to what society says, what culture says, but according to what you say. So Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, uh, heart to obey, and help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.